The Book of Lamentations is about a time when the swelling might of peoples destroyed in great measure the covenant people of God. And so that psalm reminds us of had it not been for the Lord being for us, we would have been destroyed. And in the case of the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in 586 B.C., being the later dating, you'll see typically on timelines a range of about three years. So James Usher has um, 588. 586 is what you see in most of the common textbooks, and that's because there's a little bit of a dating you know, range in terms of discussion of when some of the things happened. So how you date things, all these dates in that time have a range, depending on the book you're looking at, of a a three-year zone or so. So this book, you remember we read about King Josiah. We read about him being the last great king, his great reforms. We read about his death in battle, um, that he was commanded by God to not go into battle against Necho, uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, and yet he did, and he died. And we saw there a decline away, and then there was, in 607, the first attack of Nebuchadnezzar on Jerusalem. There was a rebellion and a second attack on Jerusalem and a greater plundering. And then there was another rebellion and there was the destruction of Jerusalem, the tearing down of its walls, the destroying of the city, the taking away almost everyone there, and the destruction of the temple. And so when we are, as soon as we complete Lamentations going into Ezra, this is the effect. We have, we have studied that glory of Josiah's reign, his end, and we have looked at the idea of the destruction of the temple. But Lamentations, written by the prophet Jeremiah, is a collection of five poems that are written about this grief of the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the, the, the structure... Is, is obvious and plain in the text. Every chapter is a different poem. Okay, so that's the first thing. In chapter 1, for example, it's very easy to capture the various literary units because it's an acrostic. And every verse, you have 22 verses in the first chapter, every verse is a different part of the acrostic for the Hebrew alphabet. And so those are each a divinely inspired literary unit. They are captured in, and I, I don't know how to pronounce this because I've only like read it ever, so I don't have any idea how it's actually supposed to be said. So it's strophes or strophes or strophes or I don't really know. So if somebody knows how to say the word, let me know. But uh, the idea of the collections of three lines and those collections of three lines have three, they're, they're three poetic lines and you have those, those groups, those clusters for the acrostic. Now, when you go to chapter two, okay, so, so chapter one of Lamentations is using the imagery of a woman. And what you have here uh, in this imagery of the woman is the idea of a widow, a dethroned queen, who is reduced to the status of a slave, a treacherous wife who is betrayed by her adulterous lovers. Then you have the idea of sexual abuse 
and shame and being stripped by someone forcibly. And then the idea of, of ritual uncleanness <coughs> related to menstruation. Okay, so this is a progressively sort of um, difficult text to deal with. And chapter 2 is, again, an acrostic with the same sort of structure, except there's one minor thing that happens. <coughs> Two letters get inverted in the acrostic. But chapter 2 is all about the wrath of God. That this, was, this destruction was the outpouring of the wrath of God. And then... Chapter 3 focuses primarily on this idea of the afflicted man, that, that Jerusalem was like an afflicted man and his community. Um, and so there's this idea of the community and of the afflicted man, and the afflicted man is connected to Job. There are a number of allusions and references to Job, and so uh, Job and Jerusalem are connected there. And then in the fourth chapter, there is this idea of the besieged city. And there is a, a shortening. Um, by the way, in chapter 3, one of the things that happens is the, the acrostic becomes more complex. As opposed to just the first word in the first uh, strophe, or however you say the word, um, being a, a word that has the, the, the proper letter for the acrostic, Every poetic line, they have clusters of three. So you have three poetic lines that will start with a left, and then three poetic lines that will start with that. And so you, you have this sort of uh, this more complex version of the acrostic. Chapter four, as the besieged city, also continues with an acrostic, but it starts to reduce the length. It becomes shorter. And instead of three poetic lines for each part of the acrostic, it drops down to two. And then you get to chapter 5, and chapter 5 has 24, sorry, has 22 poetic lines, and as opposed to, it's dropped down to one poetic line per little, little literary unit, and it's no longer an acrostic. And so it loses some of that structure, and it loses some of the length, and it has this kind of more chaotic conclusion. And so that, uh, that structuring is present in the book, and it's, it's obvious in terms of the structure itself. And so it helps you to understand, again, this is five poems with the Book of Lamentations, and it's given by the prophet Jeremiah. So let's begin to walk through now the poems. So the first poem, Lamentations chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princes among the provinces has become a slave. And so she's a widow and she's a slave now. And there's a literal enslaving that occurred overwhelmingly of the population. And the widowhood, right, you know, you, a widow is a person who's lost her husband, right? And so what has happened here is this city represents the church and there's sort of a loss of the relationship with God and the loss of relationship is obviously, you know, this is not a statement about being able to lose salvation, right? But there is, visible institutions are able to lose their external blessing. And so, this is giving to us the sense of visible churches can go apostate and curse befalls them. Cities, nations that were once covenanted with God 
can abandon that and throw it off in rebellion and bring curse upon themselves. And so that widowhood is a cursed condition with a loss of protection and a loss of the blessings of a covenant relationship. And to go from being free in a prince to being a slave. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Okay, so the false friends, the false allies, when you want the world to applaud you and you want the world to love you, and if you want false gods to be there for you, to be your lovers, you have these, these things to, to pursue. They fail, and God brings discipline. He brings suffering. And there is weeping and tears. And Lamentations is not a common book to preach on. But the Bible is full of passages that relate to mourning and suffering and difficulty and curse. And so it is the duty of the preacher to preach the word. And these are things that we have all, we have all gone through bitter weeping and tears because of suffering that we have undergone for our own sin. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. She wouldn't enjoy the Sabbaths when God commanded it. And God says, I see. You don't like my rests. I will send you to a place where no one cares about my rests. And you will be their slaves. And they will give you none. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. Think about how well trodden the roads to Jerusalem would be. To have centuries of travel of hundreds of thousands on a yearly basis to Jerusalem three times. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. The destruction of Jerusalem results in no one coming for the set feasts anymore. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. We are supposed to look upon these things and we are to hear these horrors and we are to take them in as a picture of the things that come when we do not seek to be faithful to God. We, we often, we go through texts and we go, rah, rah, go team. We have the strength. The Lord is with you. He helps you to conquer. There are blessings for obedience. And that's all true. And there are curses for disobedience. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her. Because of the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. Our forefathers built a Christian civilization, and our forefathers that are more recent gave it away. And because of that, we are in captivity. We are the tail and not the head. We have to work now and groan under affliction 
to seek now to see liberty restored, to see blessings restored. And so notice the causal relationship. Because of the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 6. And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. For princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. And you might see male deer acting in some sort of glory and strength when they're trying to prance about and impress the female deer, competing with male deer for dominance in some sort of area. And even in fleeing against a predator when there's great strength, you might go, wow, there's strength on display. But a, a deer that has no pasture, that is hungry, it's fleeing, it's, it becomes skittish, and fearful, and unimpressive in stride. And so the church becomes one without splendor that flees quickly and flees unimpressively. These are the things that come with disobedience. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. One of the things, one of the horrifying ways that God's curse for disobedience comes is by bringing to remembrance when you do not have the blessings that you used to have as a sort of haunting. There are literary characters that kind of represent this. You have these people that were once in great position, and then they sort of are always looking back. I used to have great things. I used to be able to whatever. And so this idea of looking back on the days of splendor but having them taken away is a terrifying thing. Right? It's one thing in your youth to be poor and to work hard to reach a station of grandeur. But to be in a station of grandeur and lose it and trying to gain it after having lost it is so much more wearisome on the soul. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her. Right? That idea, no one to help her, that should remind you of the text in Deuteronomy that talks about the idea of the duty of a woman, if you're assaulted, to cry out for help, to resist and to cry out for help. And then at the same time, that it's to be assumed that if you are attacked in the open countryside and there's nobody around, the, the, the assumption is that you did cry for help even though nobody heard you. Right? That is there. So this is, this is being brought out. This is alluded to. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her, the adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. And we're seeing that in our, in our culture. We have seen it you know, in our culture, the, the mocking of the church and its downfall and, and you know, the idea of the privileged place of Christianity in society and there's a scorn at it. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore, she has become vile. All who honor her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Like there is this, there, the, the, the shame has been exposed. The, all of the dirty laundry has been aired. All of the honor is taken away. She is despised. Those that honored her now revile her. 
This is what happens here. So this is what Jeremiah has lived through. This is what Jeremiah has seen. This is what the people of Jerusalem have lived through and seen. And to some extent we are seeing that in our own day with the church, the degree of its mockery, the level of blasphemy, the extent to which there is no honor that is given to churchmen or to pastors or to being Christian. We, the, the, the culture has seen our nakedness. Verse 9, her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. Now, this idea of a collapse being awesome, right? when something small falls over, nobody is particularly impressed. When something large very gradually erodes away, nobody is particularly impressed. The thing that's impressive is when something great collapses quickly. And that is what happened here. This glorious Solomonic temple a Jerusalem that had been in splendor, a Jerusalem that in the reign of Solomon dominated from the Nile to the Euphrates and collected tribute from every nation. It is now desolate. And so there is this cry, O oh Lord, behold my affliction. So the enemy is exalted. There is a recognition there of the mercy of God, a calling out to God of the affliction that's present, even there. If our external blessings have gone away, if we are a part of an apostate church, if we are a part of a nation or civil sphere that has abandoned God, God is still merciful to His elect. And what you find as you begin to deal with the section that alludes to Job later, is this idea that, you know, the first chapter is dominantly focused upon the harlotries of the external, the harlotries of the visible church and of the civil sphere. But as you begin to deal with that man of affliction, Jeremiah himself associates himself with the man of affliction. He's associating himself with Job. And Jeremiah and Job are both figures that are Righteous figures, godly men who are suffering under affliction because of their covenant association with the wicked. And so we are talked to as a people who are disobedient in chapter 1. We are, we are talked to being shown the wrath of God in chapter 2. We are talked to being shown the idea of being the righteous undergoing suffering and testing as we get to the section on the afflicted man. And there's a hint of that here in in chapter 1, verse 9. Verse 10, The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. Right, This idea of the the grasping and taking away. Oh, you like this? Let me take it. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. Right? The, the Gentiles were forbidden from going in without becoming Jews. In the sanctuary, only the priests could enter. In the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could enter once a year. 
And these people go in and they defile the space and they steal the things and they inventory it and they take it away to Babylon. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. Right? They don't have anything left. They're pawning off the family heirlooms. They're selling off their, their wedding rings. They're selling off the watches that they have. Basically giving away their TVs. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Again, this prayer in the midst of all this. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see, if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of His fierce anger, from above He has sent fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. This idea of fire in the bones is sometimes tied with the idea of feeling the need to preach. The idea of the prophet having to say words of truth. And Jeremiah in particular hated that he had to be a one to bring these oracles of woe. He is considered the weeping prophet. And so he had fire in his bones and he didn't want to preach. And yet his zeal for the Lord, for the truth of God in the face of falsehood all around overpowered him to speak though it brought him no pleasure. And he felt as though in the hatred it brought to him that it was like a net for his feet. And a thing that made him desolate and weak. Nobody seemed to show compassion for Jeremiah and nobody seemed to care about this idea of the need to see repentance in Jerusalem so that Jerusalem would receive help. And the nations, as they passed by and as they drove in, as they came to the city and destroyed it, there was no compassion. Verse 14, The yoke of my transgression was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. These nations are an oppressor. This is an enslaving of the woman. The idea of the woman Jerusalem being enslaved, having a yoke of transgressions, being bound in slavery because of transgression. And so there's a, a double meaning here to this idea of the yoke of transgression. There's an enslavement to sin. Right? One of the ways that the Lord is terrifying is that he hands us over to our sins. And when he hands us over to our sins, if we love sin and we won't put it off, he hands us over to it to do it more. And as we do it more, we find that it is a scourge to our own soul. It harms our own lives. It steals our joy and wastes our energy. And it prevents us from many good works. 
So the yoke of transgression is a slavery, but the yoke of transgression is also a covenantal connection. The, the covenantal curses for the transgressions are connected in a way that seems like there is no way to remove them. And so there is a handing over to oppressors as the world and the flesh and the devil. Verse 15, The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. So the winepress of the Lord is used in the prophets to talk about the idea of the wrath of God and this, this bringing out of curse. And it's interesting because we obviously see wine used as a symbol for blessing and rejoicing in many, many places in the scriptures. And so the symbols that would be associated with joy, we see the idea of instead mourning and misery here. And so the things that would be rejoicing in ordinary life, when the curse of the Lord comes upon a place and upon a people, it takes the joy out of those things. And it makes them to be unenjoyable. Bread becomes ash in the mouth. Wine is as vinegar. And so we see the curse of the Lord on Jerusalem. Verse 16. For these things I weep, my eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. You know, all the inheritance I would give to my children has been taken away because the enemy prevailed because my protector is far from me. My comforter who gives me strength, my comforter who restores me, he is far away and my eye overflows with water. You know, we can work very hard to try to build things, but if we do not honor the Lord as we seek to build, even what we build can be made desolate. 17. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. It is a sign of, you know, help me. But no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob, but those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. It's something to remove. The Lord responds to disobedience by bringing strife. It's interesting. Oftentimes we disobey in order to avoid strife. Right? We, we disobey to people please. What the Lord says is that if we disobey... What the Lord does is he raises up people around us to generate strife. <clears throat> 18. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. <clears throat> Hear now all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. Now look at that. Does that remind you of Job at all? Verse 18, the Lord is righteous. These afflictions that the Lord has brought on me, He is righteous. Because I rebelled against His commandment. When we have afflictions in our own lives, 
it is important that at no point do we attack the Lord and impugn him as though he has been unjust. We do not deserve any blessings. We do not deserve the very breath we breathe. Our lives we are owed no continuance of. Our property, no increase or enjoyment. All that we have is something that is not owed to us. And if we do not believe, and if we never will believe, then everything we have is a pouring of coals on our head to increase our responsibility. And if we are elect, then everything we have is a grace to us. And if the Lord brings discipline, if we recognize it as righteous, that is a part of a test. And acknowledging the righteousness of the Lord in His discipline is something that itself brings reward in this life in terms of the sanctifying benefits and the ways that it lightens our suffering. But it also brings reward that lasts. And we give it on the day of judgment. And so when you suffer under the hand of God, do not charge Him. Though He slay you, trust Him. 19. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. Right? Oftentimes, in our, in our distress, we, we seek to escape by returning to our sinful pleasures. And yet they deceive us. We call for the false gods, and they only deepen our sorrow. They do not come when we want sometimes, and when they do, they do not bring the comfort that we truly need. My priests and my elders breathe their last in the city. There's a death of the ones who are honorable, those who are in high station. While they sought food to restore their life, these ones in authority, the elders and the priests, they starved. What happened to the less powerful? Verse 20, See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me. For I have been very rebellious. Outside, the sword bereaves. At home, it is like death. There is a killing in the countryside. There is a destruction outside and in the city, the walls, rather than providing a proper protection, become a prison. So the slaying by the sword has no escape. 21. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. The day that's been announced is the day of judgment. When we suffer great miseries at the hands of our enemies, it makes more obvious the goodness of the day of judgment. And you find this calling down of a request for judgment. Right? God, God brings judgment on the church. He brings judgment on nations. He brings judgment on the enemies of the church. And when judgment comes... It causes us to remember that there is a day of judgment that is ultimate. 
And so the comfort of realizing that God will bring about justice is strongest when we are going through great suffering by unjust works from others. 22. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. One of the terrors that gets referenced here is sort of this idea of you, know, you cry for help, you're surrounded by enemies, and they don't care. You cry for help, you're surrounded by enemies, and they just increase the harm that they do to you. And that's one of the horrors that occurs in torture, for example. And, and many Christians throughout history have died at the hands of torturers. We live in a culture where it is possible that we or some of our children could be martyred. And whether we were faithful or not, it is possible for faithful servants of the Lord to suffer because of the unfaithfulness of the church at large. And so I encourage you to consider this lament of Jeremiah and to think upon the reality that our enemies do not overcome us only because of the blessing of the Lord that restrains them. There are so many wicked people and influences in our own culture. And the restraint of their wickedness right now is an act of God to preserve us. We must use the time well. It's so easy to spend and fritter away time. We have to find good use of time while we have it. Now, 